Hello and welcome. This is the Business of Software podcast episode 52. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we hear from Rita McGrath and Mike Sikorsky looking at software-driven inflection points. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. In this boss talk, Rita McGrath shares her findings on how strategic inflection points offer an opportunity to disrupt existing players, and Mike Sikorsky shows how companies create entirely new business models to solve perennial problems and drive growth. Using examples from Apple, Amazon, Dollar Shave Club, banking apps, and even chess inventing geniuses, Rita and Mike look at how you can foresee corners coming up in your software roadmap, and how companies can be disrupted by inflection points they didn't see coming. Happy listening. Uh, it's a, a real pleasure to be back here for the second time. And for those of you who worked with me before, uh, this is going to be a little update on what I presented uh, the last time. And Michael and I are co-presenting because we've launched a joint venture to integrate strategy and software. As we like to say, a smart strategy requires smart software. So She's business, I'm software. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, it's worked out really well so far. Uh, so what we wanted to talk to you about this morning is the concept of strategic inflection points. And this is the next phase of work that I've been doing on how do we cope with a transient advantage economy. And just to put that in context, in strategy for years, right, the predominant idea was that you had a beautiful thing called a sustainable competitive advantage. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, gorgeous. If you, bless you, if you can find one, go for it, right? That's awesome. Unfortunately, in the world most of us live in, what we're dealing with instead is transient competitive advantage. And the sneaky thing about transient advantages is that they can actually be a trap. This notion of sticking to a business model, sticking to a competitive advantage that you've enjoyed for a long period of time uh, can actually be quite dangerous. And I thought just to bring this point home, we'd, we'd share an interview that was done of an executive who um, kind of got trapped by this notion of sustainable competitive advantage. So let's see what he has to say for himself. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody, say hello to Mr. Jim Balsillie. Thank you, Jim. All right. Thank you to be here. How is it? That you have the same one that I have. Shouldn't you have some fancy James Bond version? You're living the dream, man. <laughs> doesn't even have a camera. You don't have the camera one. How are things going? Things are really good, thanks. Yeah, yeah. excellent, excellent. As you imagine, um, I mean, all the things that have sort of changed in your life in the last 10 or 15 years? Uh, a lot less has changed than you would think, really. A very normal life, kind of, it's just a whole lot more zeros on everything. Yeah. So. Which is great if the decimal point's in the right place. You know, uh, the the I mean, where, where Rim has gone uh, in the last, like, you know, did you have a moment where you thought, okay, I think we, we've reached, like, we're here. You know, not a lot, really. I don't, I don't sort of think that way. I don't, I don't sort of look up too much. I don't look down too much. Uh, you know, I just, it's the great fun is doing what you do every day. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm sort of a poster child for not sort of doing anything but what we do, uh, you know, every day. So. Um, no, I don't really think about it a lot, no. I mean, do you get the sense that at, at this point with what the BlackBerry itself, that device has done for your company, that it's a matter of time before other people, like the iPhone didn't really do it. I mean, like, do you ever look at it and go, what are we going to do if this isn't our primary business, growing rim beyond something like a BlackBerry? Mm. No. No. Roughly <laughs> <laughs> die. <laughs> so that'll just be yeah, it. We're a very poorly diversified portfolio. <laughs> it's like, we sell one thing. It either goes to the moon or it crashes to earth. So, uh, <laughs> but it's making it to the moon pretty good. So sure, totally. Stay with it. I have had people ask me, did you make that up? Like, was that something you staged and photoshopped and stuff? That was an actual interview that was done of, as you know, the Jim Balsillie, the former co-CEO of BlackBerry. And the inflection point, of course, was the introduction of, uh, of the iPhone and the smartphone as we knew it, which essentially, you know, saw BlackBerry off into the 
the, the, the role of being a niche player in what had formerly been an industry it dominated. Now, I don't want you thinking that I'm using him as an example because I want to make fun of him, because I don't. Um, Balsillie was brilliant. His company changed the world. It transformed you know, the Canadian tech scene. And I think what's more germane to the conversation this morning is if you look at their stock price chart, which you have before you on the screen, that interview was taped in April of 2008. So a year after the iPhone was introduced, when we were just beginning to come to grips with what this thing really meant, uh, and Android, of course, introduced the same year. Um, and if you look at that stock price chart and you stop it, if you stop the clock at the moment of that interview, uh, you would have seen nothing but success. A few little setbacks here and there, but basically the trajectory was very positive and long-term. And of course, we know it reached its stock price high in June of that same year and has been in retreat uh, ever since. And I think the reason that is so important to think about when you're thinking about how do we navigate in transient advantage circumstances um, that we need to be very attuned to this notion of inflection points. And when I say a strategic inflection point, it's a term that was coined by Andy Grove back in the, back in the 90s, I guess. Um, and he said it's a moment in time at which your fundamental assumptions underlying your business change. So my specific definition of it is every business, every business, yours, mine, ours, are all formed at a given point in history. And there are things that are possible at that point. And you can think of it kind of like being enveloped in an envelope of constraints. When something changes in the environment that shifts those constraints, that has the potential to be a strategic inflection point. And that's what can sort of really destabilize your business. Now the good news, and there is good news in this, is inflection points can be dangerous, as they were for BlackBerry. They can also lead to incredible opportunity if you get them early. Second piece of good news is most things that show up on your doorstep as a strategic inflection point actually were brewing for a long time. It takes time for these things to become widely commercialized. So as an example, back in 1995, there was a Fortune reporter who wrote very explicitly about the potential of e-commerce to really destabilize retail. And lots and lots of retailers took this to heart and leapt into you know, websites and selling things online. Well, back in 1995, how did you access the web? I mean, some of you will remember those times, right? How did you get on the web back then? You dialed in, right? I mean, it was and then and it was AOL, at least in the United States. Um, and AOL originally sold by the minute, and that freaked people out because they didn't know how expensive it was going to be. And then they went to a subscription plan, and, and that was great for the customer, terrible for AOL because it didn't have the capacity, and so you get busy signals. I mean, the whole infrastructure that was necessary to create e-commerce as we know it just didn't exist. So hundreds of retailers sort of leapt into this, built websites, said, oh my god, this e-commerce stuff. This isn't real. It's not happening. We tried that. Forget it, right? Um, and yet, the real inflection point, right, took till basically the last few years to actually show up on their doorsteps. And that's the nature of what we're talking about. So you don't want to be too early, right? Because that's the, the ecosystem, the infrastructure isn't there yet. But you certainly don't want to be too late, uh, as in this example. So. Um, Another, another great story that this brings to mind is uh, a company that took advantage of an inflection point to indeed drive terrific success. And I don't know if you've heard of the Dollar Shave Club, but it's a really interesting case of taking advantage of new possibilities in the environment. So let's hear from them. Hi, I'm Mike, founder of dollarshaveclub.com. What is dollarshaveclub.com? Well, for a dollar a month, we send high quality razors right to your door. Yeah. A dollar. Are the blades any good? No. Our blades are f***ing great. Each razor has stainless steel blades and aloe vera lubricating strip and a pivot head. It's so gentle a toddler could use it. And do you like spending $20 a month on brand name razors? 19 go to Roger Federer. I'm good at tennis. And do you think your razor needs a vibrating handle, a flashlight, a back scratcher, and 10 blades? Your handsome-ass grandfather had one blade and polio. Looking good, pop up! Stop paying for shave tech you don't need. And stop forgetting to buy your blades every month. Alejandro and I are going to ship them right to you.
We're not just selling razors, we're also making new jobs. Alejandra, what were you doing last month? Not working. What are you doing now? Working. I'm no Vanderbilt, but this train makes hay. So stop forgetting to buy your blades every month and start deciding where you're gonna stack all those dollar bills I'm saving you. We are dollarshaveclub.com and the party is on. Substitutes for our walk-on music, right? Um, now, Dollar Shave Club uh, had its roots in uh, a meeting that happened by chance between this guy, uh, Mike, the entrepreneur, and a friend of his dad's who had somehow acquired something like 250,000 razors from Korea and was just kind of looking for a way to unload them. Uh, <laughs> and Mike had this revelation. He said, and the two of them got to talking about like the shaving experience and what's it like. Well, the big problem with razors, like those of you who buy your razors in a conventional retail outlet, like what's that experience like? It's awful because razors are very expensive and very easy to steal. And so what ends up happening is you, now use your imaginations here, you go into your retail establishment and you find a friendly, helpful, available person to unlock the razor fortress for you, right? And then you pull it out, and I looked them up recently, a pack of eight Gillette high-end cartridges was $28 and change, right? And that's a ton of money for a razor. So Mike has this revelation. He says, wait a minute, why do that? Like, why do I have to subject my customers to that experience? And he says, we can send them straight to your door. We'll build a relationship with our clients. We'll have a direct-to-consumer situation going on and, uh, and, and burst onto the world with this video, which promptly went viral. Now, let's, uh, let's take the other end of this inflection point and think about the boardroom at Procter & Gamble, which in 2005 spent $57 billion to buy Gillette. Um, and they enjoyed a very long and sustainable competitive advantage for years and years and years. However, the entrance of Dollar Shave Club has had kind of a big impact on them. If you look at their market share in um, 2010, it was about 70% of the domestic shaving market. Uh, as of 2015, it was down to about 59%. Their market share has been in retreat uh, ever since. So a beautiful example of a transient advantage, inflection point driven kind of shift. So let's look at the backstory of this. Um, and this is a picture of inflection points, right? Where it can take your business to new heights, it can undermine your business. Back in the O's, three things happened which made this possible. Now remember, I'm saying an inflection point is something that changes the nature of the constraints that operate under your business. So we had the invention of YouTube. A bunch of frustrated software engineers said, you know, it's a pain in the neck to have to share videos. Why don't we invent some technology that will help us do that more easily? And today, of course, YouTube is, is millions and millions of hours of video uploaded regularly. Before YouTube, if you wanted to make a video like Mike's and get it distributed widely all over the world, you needed to own a movie studio and global production facilities. YouTube dramatically changes that con constraint. And then of course we have Facebook, you know, two billion users. If you wanted to get a message to two billion people, like before Facebook, you had to own like printing companies, you had to own a media empire and satellites and stuff, right? <laughs> Once you have Facebook, gets really, really easy. And then, of course, we have Amazon Web Services, which now means two guys in a garage could do what you'd had to like spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on IBM and equivalent equipment to do. Now, in the beginning, nobody took these particularly seriously, certainly not the suits at Procter & Gamble, right? YouTube. Come on, cat videos? Seriously? Like, like who cares about that? Um, Facebook, college students sending beer bong pictures to each other. Like, who could take that seriously? Um, and yet, when you think about the constraints those things are shifting, it, it dramatically changes what's possible. So that's what we're looking for in a strategic inflection point. Um, so one of the things we're going to hope to leave you with is how do you develop some early warnings that things are about to change? And the first premise here is that we've got three kinds of indicators that we can be looking for when we're trying to understand the data that our business uh, is operating under. There are lagging indicators. 
they're great information, but it's too late, right? It's already done. You know, it, it gives you lots of data about what's already happened. You can't change them. Uh, most financial records are lagging indicators. Uh, Satya Nadella at Microsoft was saying, you know, usage is a leading indicator. Revenue is a lagging indicator. I mean, that, that's the mindset. Then we have current indicators, things like your current net promoter score or maybe your, your sales we can't say pipeline, whatever that is, your sales funnel, whatever that is, um, you know, people that you're talking to right now, the hardest thing to get a hold of are leading indicators. Why is that? Uh, they're subjective. Reasonable people can disagree about what they mean. They're often qualitative. It's very hard to quantify something that hasn't happened yet. And most importantly, the power of a leading indicator is not necessarily whether what it predicted came true. I'm not a big believer in prediction. I think that's a fool's errand. But I am a big believer in awareness and preparation and being ready. So great example of a leading indicator. Uh, you know, back in the mid-90s, a bunch of computer people said, oh my god, to save money on storage, computer systems all over the world have been programmed with two digits for the date. And come the turn of the millennium, Computers everywhere are going to think it's 1900. And this is going to be bad, people, right? Airplanes are going to drop out of the sky, and nuclear plants are going to become unstable, and we should all move to Montana and stockpile wheat. Do you remember how hysterical some of those predictions were? So what happens? Big moment happens. Year 2000 moves in. What happened? Nothing happened. Why did nothing happen? We took the leading indicator seriously, and we did something about it. You know, companies like, built the entire Indian outsourcing business, right? Um, and, 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 and that's the nature of, of a leading indicator. So we want to be thinking about early warnings. And we've got a very specific technique for doing this. So the first premise is information about the state of the world starts off very low, low level in terms of the strength of the signal. It's very noisy. <laughs> And oftentimes, it kind of gathers a lot of momentum. There's a lot more information until you finally get to the stage where you have facts. You can take photographs. You can draw you know, outlines. What's the problem with waiting till then? It's too late, right? We all know that, right? Because here's the problem. In strategy, there's always a second line, right? And in this particular case, your degrees of strategic freedom are actually inversely related to the strength of the signal that you're working on. And it's a, a, a really difficult issue. So now you don't want to be making decisions too early, like those retailers who built websites in 1995 and wondered why nobody went shopping on them. You don't want to be too late, like retailers today, that are wondering where all the people went, right? So what you want to be doing is moving your decision frame earlier in time to right around the middle of this chart. I call this the period of optimal warning. So the technique for doing this is you say, let's envision a time zero event, an event that's very uh, concrete, that we can think about very concretely, but that represents something that could have a big impact on our business for good or for ill, right? For, it can take our business forward in a big way or it can really hurt our business. Then what you want to be doing is saying, okay, that's time zero. Let's work backward. What would have to be true six months before? time zero, 12 months before time zero, 18 months before time zero. And what you can start to do then is you can work with your team to say who's got data about indicators that have to do with this time zero event. And uh, you can often get, get that bigger picture uh, in one place by doing this. Uh, so here's just some examples for you. Um, I was working with an insurance uh, company, and they're very worried about what's called stranger-owned life insurance, where life insurance actually gets traded on an open market. And their time zero event was, what would we do if 50% of our business was no longer traded through brokers or sold directly to people, but was sold on some kind of market? That's a time zero event. So that's just an example of, of what a time zero event uh, kind of looks like. Um, for, for people in telecoms, right, over-the-top services now accounting for a huge amount of the traffic and volume and so forth. So you want to be very explicit, and Michael's going to talk about this uh, a little bit. So I took this example just of autonomous cars. So let's say our time zero event, if you're Ford or General Motors or Swiss reinsurance, um, is, is that this now is a reality. Autonomous cars are available and widely used in everything. And you know you work backward and you start to see things at the six month mark like, okay, you know towns and cities have passed ordinances that say this is okay. The technology's gotten to a point where it can be really useful. You go back 12 months and you're looking at things like um, initial regulatory actions and, and so forth. You go back 18 months, or today, 
And what you see is you know, the first death from an autonomous car, the first beer delivery by autonomous truck, which, which are all things that have happened now. So I was actually showing this chart, this exact chart, to a group of senior executives at a major insurance company. And the room went completely quiet. And these guys kind of looked at me and I said, well, what, you know, what's going on? What are you thinking? And the most senior person in the room said, you know, all our models are premised on the idea that this is at least five to 10 years out. And if you're right, if, if, this mod, if this chart is to be believed, we're looking at maybe two years. And, uh, and he said, now on the one hand, if we're, if, we don't, if we're not ready, that could be a disaster for us because it's gonna completely change the assumptions in the reinsurance business for, for cars. But if, if you're right and we prepare and we're there before everybody else in the industry that's thinking on a five-year time frame, that could be a huge advantage for us. We could actually shape how this insurance part of the autonomous vehicle equation works out. So they kind of left. We, initially, they were kind of freaked out. But by the time we got out of the meeting, they were energized. They said, if this works, this could be a huge possible uh, advantage for us. So at this point, I'm going to turn you That's over. My, my section. Your section. Yeah. I, get, I get to do the what's brewing section. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's not moonshine. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to do an example for Amazon because I think it was so cool when they bought their airplane, right? And so, but again, like this, these inflection points or these, these market signals that you get, they're not always bad, right? So for example, if you're FedEx, you realize that now Amazon is your huge customer, but they, if I'm FedEx, I got 660 planes. Amazon has one now, okay? So uh, actually, they're kind of behind our vision of how we move packages. But... Something that's a lot different is, if I'm Southwest Airlines, do I think now Amazon moving packages is actually have any chance of moving people? Because Amazon decides to move people, that's a time zero event. What would I have to do backwards to understand if Amazon thinks they want to get into my business? Because Amazon's amazing at moving stuff cheap, right? And think about Southwest Airlines, all the low-cost carriers. This may be a moment for them to now plan backwards and think, what does it mean over a year or two? Um, I want to show another picture of Amazon. This is actually called the Amazon Go store. It's a trial store, and you can actually see it's all just computer vision. So you walk in, you grab stuff, it knows what you grab, it knows who you are, I know who you are, so I can just bill your Amazon credit card, I'm in your Prime account. I actually walk in, I don't have cashiers, I don't have to have software systems, right? I've already been built on, on Amazon, I just need the software to tell me what did you walk out of the store with. Um, I think it's actually really neat, like think about all the scanners. We don't even need scanners anymore. We need what's like one of the cheapest things becoming and now camera, and then software's getting more and more powerful. So you just have all these beautiful examples of, of this. Um, this is uh, image synthesis. So for example, when you look at this, this is what the input is. So you're just kind of painting like in Microsoft Paint, very basic. So there's gonna be a car logo there, there's be some cars here. And then let's look at what, what it used to look like just a few years ago. That was the best that you could do. And then this is this year. So think about from constraints and things that just don't make sense anymore. What is this idea? Like I don't really have to shoot that much video. So if I'm like in the video, why don't I just input? Why don't I just talk and say like I want some cars, I want some trees, just you know, car driving down the road, and I've just synthesized that entire video. Right? It totally starts to change. What does it mean in our business for even hosting and displaying videos? Um, testing the boundaries of capital. I don't know if anyone knows about like initial coin offerings. And so here's Kin. They actually issued a coin. It's uh, from a Canadian company called Kick. It's like a, a messaging platform. And just to share with you what they've done so far today is that they've sold 330,000 Ethereum or ETH, right? And so what does that actually mean? Well, yesterday that meant $95 million. So they issued a coin. It's they're not raising money, they're pre-selling a utility idea, and so they've now, inside their company, pre-sold this idea that there'll be this utility token called Kin, and I'll have $95 million now to go work on whatever that meant, right? Way out of, like, left field, <laughs> right? Even if you think about, like, Reid always calls us, like, wow, that's really interesting from a capital perspective, because you're not even, like, raising equity. You're just getting a whole bunch of, like, Clash of Clan gold, but you can really do stuff with it. Um, <laughs> uh, this is the market cap of, of all um, tokens. So you can see we're at 75 billion. And the part that I thought was just neat was I added up yesterday, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ is 27.5 trillion total market cap. So actually, 
if you just want to think about how much more room this could go, 366 times more powerful, right? So when you think like, oh, that's a big market cap, it's like we're not even getting started yet if this is a signal, right? Like what signal is this? Like how we view this, if you're in venture capital, this could be really different for you, right? If you're a software company, like look at Mike yesterday in FreshBooks, he's like, well, I didn't really want to take VC, and, but then I took a bunch and maybe this, this changes that, that thing, right? So he could have had maybe that next adventure and then maybe no board, right? Um, I, I had to do some code because I love software. Um, this is <laughs> actually- on keeping this yeah, slided. <laughs> like, Vita's like, I've never seen code in a business presentation. <laughs> Look, it's okay, business is software. Um, I know, I know, I'm, I'm bringing it. Um, so, <laughs> solidity, this is how you program Ethereum contracts. This is my favorite part, especially for you, Mark. Send funds organizer. When you shut down your Ethereum contract, you actually have to make sure you run your destructor, which is called suicide. So you actually run the suicide function, and then now funds go to whoever is supposed to. This is the example code of running a smart contract conference on top of Ethereum. Uh, I thought this was awesome too. Think about like, I love this 44,000 Ethereum worth or $9 million stolen because of that change. They had the wrong scope, so someone could override in it and then basically hack the Ethereum contract. That's crazy, right? Like, that is so cool. Um, nah. So, I, people said it yesterday, Mark Andreessen, software's eating the world. I love that, but like, the thing that I think is a lot interesting is eating software's next, right? And so, this is a real software uh, programming platform. You actually code, it looks just like code. It's a little more basic. And then you send it to MIT, you wait three weeks, and then you get a, a pill that you can swallow and it will run the microphages inside of you, right? And so you think about what constraints does that just change, I think a lot. Um, and then one thing I thought was just really neat to show is that if you think about how the human body was designed, and now I just showed you Ethereum getting hacked, you can actually hack the genome so directly. So for example, animal rights, this is a specific agenda you can make someone become meat intolerant by attacking this genomic pathway. So you just, ah, I just decide I'm gonna, ah, just have a drink. It totally changes what it means to be like, take a drink now, <laughs> right? Like, uh, now I can't eat meat, I can't go in the sun, my skin color's changed. Very, very interesting things in the technology space. Um, back to Rita. Okay. She doesn't have dancing music, okay. <laughs> I, I should. I should have. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, back to business versus like. Yeah. Um, so here's, the, I think, one of the interesting observations I would make. In almost every case where a company's been really disrupted by a strategic inflection point, someone saw it coming. My favorite personal example of this is my dad. Uh, my dad's an organic chemist, brilliant guy, over 100 patents to his name. And back in the day, back in 1980, he went to work for the Kodak Corporation. And he's literally sitting across the desk from this guy called Thomas Whiteley. And Thomas Whiteley is the head of the Emulsion Research uh, Laboratory at Kodak. Has been for decades, right? Kodak lifer, you stab him in the arm, he bleeds silver halide, you know, that kind of <laughs> guy. Um, and he says to my dad, who was from Xerox and had been to Xerox Park, he'd worked with mouses. He, I mean, he was talking about this stuff years before it went mainstream. And he said to my dad, well, so, you know, Wolfgang, his name's Wolfgang, what do you see in the, coming in the future? And my dad lays it all out. Oh, things are going to go digital, that's absolutely clear. Uh, you know, eight millimeter film has had it, blah, 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 blah. Lays it all out, like the future. Because he's a scientist, and scientists are paid to be close to disruptive changes, right? They're, they're paid to look at what's coming. And, and they see technological roadmaps. They understand where things are likely to head. So Whiteley, what's his response to this? What do you think his response to this is? <laughs> Wolfgang, go back to the lab where you can do minimal damage. Thank you very much for your input. So I was with my dad last weekend and I, and I said to him, didn't, didn't it bother you that you saw this so clearly and the company took no action? Didn't it drive you crazy? And he looked at me and he said, no. I mean, it's a pity for them, it's a shame. And, uh, and he said something very interesting to me. I said, well, why didn't you, you know, take more action or, or start a conversation or whatever. And he looked at me, he said, that's ridiculous. I'm a scientist, he's management. He asked me my opinion, I gave him my opinion. What he does with it is his problem. 
So someone sees it. Someone always sees it. And when you go back and dissect these cases where things have been disrupted, uh, what you see is that someone is there. And the question I think that this raises for us is how good is your organization at actually getting that insight into a place where somebody can take action on it. So one of the tools that Michael and I have been working on is what we're calling an innovation maturity scale assessment, where it begins with level one, which is a real focus just on exploitation. We don't do innovation at all. We're not peeking around corners. We're not looking for early warnings. We're not thinking about anything. And there are companies like that, right? Regulated utilities. I'm a regulated utility. You know, once I've negotiated the, what I'm going to get paid from the local regulator, uh, the rest of my life is about efficient operations. I don't need to be thinking that much about heavy-duty innovation. As you move up the scale, you start to see a different kind of, of, of set of activities going on. So sort of level one is almost hostility towards innovation, you know, total exploitation focus. Level two is very interesting. And uh, I think a ton of companies right now are in level two. We call this innovation theater. And you all know what innovation theater is like, I'm sure. You take a team of people, senior executives, and you send them off on a Silicon Valley tour, right? And they get their picture taken next to the Facebook sign, and they get to hang out with the cool kids in hoodies. And, they, um, and, and you have innovation boot camps. I love this. This is great for my business, by the way. Innovation boot camps, love it. You're going to get a bunch of people into a room. They're standing up. They're putting post-it notes on whiteboards. They're sort of doing the music thing. Um, and and it, it's great. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's, 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 they pay me well, it's wonderful. Uh, but it never really goes anywhere. Because to build real innovation proficiency, you have to have ideas, of course. But you also have to have an incubation process where you're going to take those ideas and form them into something that you can take to market. Uh, and then you need an acceleration process. And for many of you, this is a huge deal. Because now you've got, you all know about technical debt, so you've got to refactor your technical debt. Lots of people don't think about organizational debt. Right? So in the beginning, you hire willy-nilly, and everybody's in it for the cause, and it's wonderful, and nobody's sitting there rationalizing salaries or working out what job titles people need or you know, thinking about you know, your, your hiring practices or any of that. But if you're going to be a fully-fledged member of the organization, all that stuff has to get fixed. So you accumulate these things. So as you move up on the innovation maturity scale, you start to see what I'll call localized innovation. So it sort of takes root in some part, opportunistic innovation. But these lower levels of the innovation maturity scale, you're still depending typically on a senior sponsor, a major champion. It's not embedded in the organization. To get really mature, where you've got this consistent looking at what's going on in the outside world and using that to inform the choices that you make, uh, you've actually got to have governance processes, funding processes, metrics, the right kind of culture, the ability for someone to say, I see something brewing in Indonesia that I think could have significant effects for our business down the road, you need to be able to, to, to do that, right? And so it's not until you get to sort of levels six, seven, eight that you start to see innovation as a real um, proficiency. And so we've actually developed some ways of beginning to measure that, you know, figuring out where the organization is on that, and then figuring out what, what steps would you need to take to start to move up. The other uh, comment I would make is you don't get to go from being a level two to being a level eight, like in six months. It's a journey because a lot of these things require heavy organizational shifts. Um, and uh, this is a quote I often use, which is, uh, if we don't make small amounts of resources available to test ideas at an early stage, our ideas get big before they get smart. And so you end up with big, heavy-duty, successful, um, unsuccessful uh, failures. And this is a great quote from Andy Grove that I, I think we should all take to heart. Snow melts from the edges. And what he means by that, or meant by that, is that to really see what's going on, you're not going to sit in headquarters and, and get that message. You're going to have to get out into the world and see where the changes are beginning to take place. So with that, I think I hand over to you now, right? Oh, thank you. I have one more. Are you going to dance on this one? Am I going to dance? Look how awesome this guy is. You could throw his canes away. Oh, that's my favorite part. <laughs> so fun. Um, so... Okay, business and software, we're talking innovation maturity, early warning signals, what's really going on? I'm going to start with this with an old um, parable. That, so the inventor of chess goes to talk 
to the Emperor of India. The Emperor of India is so impressed with the invention of chess, says, you name whatever you want, I'll give it to you. The inventor of chess says, I just want one grain of rice on the first square and just keep doubling it after that. And so the part of the story that's not always told is by the time they got to the second half of the chessboard, the emperor killed the inventor because he's so offended. <laughs> Right, like that's offensive. In fact, if you do the math and you get to the 64 square on the chessboard, that square alone would have more rice than's ever been harvested today in all time, right? And so the reason I, I think about this stuff all the time is this in our business, we actually kind of touch the frontier all the time and these signals are there. But one of the things I think is really interesting from once you have some scale in your company is that we're entering the second half of the chessboard. So when you go look at all the analysts and they look at like how fast transistors are coming into stuff, if you just even feel it, you can be like, hmm, maybe we are in the 32nd square. So the point is that it's actually gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse. So you have this idea of how fast technology accelerates, you know, Kurzweil, law of accelerating returns and whatnot. And then you have kind of where we are now and how fast humans can adapt to it, right? And so what do we actually do, right? Like, what do I actually try to do? And so I'll just pause on a yak for a second. So what would a yak in summertime help me understand how I handled the second half of the chessboard? Well, actually, it doesn't help me at all. Okay, but winter yaks do, right? And so if you, if you just bear with me for a second, there's this beautiful story about in Nepal why they have fluid property rights. Why do they have to have fluid property rights? Makes no sense to lots of people. But it turns out how the snow falls in the mountain is different every year. And if we don't work together as a team, actually some of our yaks don't get fed and the other yaks, are, I don't have enough yaks to eat all the grass that I have. So, the people in Nepal have worked this out, right? So if you actually take a step back and you think about it through our lens, if you're a founder or a CEO, how do you lift up and let everyone basically have more and more and more autonomy, right? So Rita says snow melts from the edges. Are you seeing this? You know, if you actually don't have small bets for experiments, how are you gonna get there? And the reason why I just love thinking about this work, and, and by the way, this work is from Lynn Ostrom. She won the Nobel Prize for this thinking. She even has like this eight step framework of how you design for local autonomy. Of course, you still have to have nested regimes, but this is kind of the thing that I think about. It's sometimes the last thing we talk about inside like the business of software. Right? In fact, there's this beautiful story where um, Shale Sandberg goes to Google and they're talking about this massive reorg with Eric. And the reorg is, is take all engineers, all 200, and have them report to one person. Right? That's like so classic our business, so classic. Right? Like the architectures that we designed for our software, so magical, so beautiful, this is decoupled. And then I'm like, now just for fun, I want to see what your talent architecture looks like. I'm like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. What do you mean? It's like everyone through me, it's good, right? Even look at Jason's opening speech, like, ah, maybe just even be an editor, don't try to write it all. Um, and so I look at this as how do we get out of the way? So especially if you're trying to scale your company, and I don't mean scale, like take the same thing, exploit and go out, it's like just be around for a long haul. So how do we get out of the way? And so, for example, I'll ignore that, but internally in our company, we think about it, we've um, made this construct of FTT, or follow the talent. Right? So that's the guiding light, that's our North Star, we're gonna follow the talent. Of course you have to do all this work, you have to actually install a lot of org constructs in order to do that. Um, and so I think there's some really, a beautiful quote from Erica here about everyone has talent, what's rare is courage to follow it. Because especially, I think this is part of the reason why it's so interesting in our world, is that by the time you decide you wanna start your software company or start your company, it's so weird to then say, well, the next thing I now want to do is just let everyone else make all the decisions and make sure that they've caught all the problems, right? So like, I, want, I had this lens, I had a North Star. And then over time you realize like, actually I want all of my teams to have all their own North Stars and to drive it that way. Um, and so I just want to give you an example. I love, I love the iPhone, I love iMessage. And uh, as an example, in our team, they adopted Slack, okay? This is not my decision. I don't even get a say. Actually called it wrong, I like, this is so <laughs> annoying. I have another new thing to learn to talk into. To me, I'm just like, I don't even get it, I don't get it, but this is the cool part in our world in FTT, I actually don't get a choice either, 
I guess I'm on Slack now. Um, and then what's crazy now is like we even have a product now built on top of Slack. So for example, this is just me being so wrong. Like I, I was saying like whatever, if, like if, you, if I had an opinion, the very first thing I'd do is block Slack, right? And then look, it's like fastest growing enterprise company. It's got all this, you know, attention this trip. And essentially I missed a strategic inflection point. Now the company didn't, right? I did. And that's what, I, that's like the whole point. The whole point is that, actually, why did I not care about Slack at that moment? Because I felt like I had a thousand pieces of communication that I wish I could have gotten out. And I have another channel. So actually, the point was, how do I even have less communications? And like, I don't even care if I'm even in Slack. Why can't I'll just stay in iMessage because I don't really make any decisions anyways. Um, and so one of the other things that we did was we have an early warning system, and this is again like work that we're doing with Rita, because I just want to know what's happening. So the snow melts from the edges. So this is an example of what happens in our company and Slack. Um, <laughs> you still so, can't get over it. <laughs> I know, I can't, I can't, it's so sad. But I just ask people, sunny, cloudy, stormy. That's it, that's all I want to know. Right, so every week a, a new question goes out, it randomly picks a bunch of people, and then it posts in a channel called EWS, it's like the only channel I care about. Right, because then I'm like, I wonder what is happening, right? Um, and so as an example, I'll show another less flattering thing. I asked, because we had a lot of growth this year, and so I was just like so freaking out, like how's our culture coming together? And so I'm super happy I got no stormies, but look at that, 37% think it's good, but over the majority it's like, man, we're, we're losing our North Star. But like, do you know, if I ask people that directly, I get such a filtered response, like, oh, I love you. Like, we've been working together for so long. Like, don't worry, I'll work out. But when I just say, you just have to pick a weather indicator, it's amazing the stuff that comes back. And then, um, just Can you I just guys. add one, one thing on oh, that? Oh, yeah, of course. So um, I used to be actually in IT um, myself. And, and you know, I'm sure you've had this experience. What's the project status? It's great. What's the project status? It's great. What's the project status? It's great. What's the project status? Oh, you know, we're going to miss our deadlines. The budget's been blown, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, when did this happen, you know? Well, you know, what I was reporting on was, you know, stream A was right on track. Stream B was a little behind. But on average, we were great. This gets you out of that. You know, this lets you get right to where the actual data live. And I think that's just such an important point. Yeah, yeah, because for example, yeah, every time I talk to a project manager, all projects are green, 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 and then they just go red, right? <laughs> I'm like, where, where's yellow, right? But when you, ask all, when you ask all the talent, you get a lot, you get a lot of project managers that are like, oh, it's all sunny, and then the talent's like, oh man, this is stormy. And I'm like, we, we have to dig in. And then just so you know, if you guys want, you can just download this and install it in Slack. Right, if you guys just want to add it to here, or if you use Slack, just go to mission.ai.ews, one button, install it. So, yeah. so this is like a little gift for you. Uh, yeah. So you can actually use this. This is a real thing you can implement tomorrow. Yeah, it's, and I, I love it. And you can ask different questions. Like, you know, if you're caring about technology or inflection points, you're going to ask questions about that. You can maybe care about projects, whatever it is. And then this is, this is an example, and just to show you how, you know, Rita talks about the innovation maturity scale and how hard it is to embed this in the backbone of the company. And this was in our, this is a part that, again, like the less, hum, the, the less fun moment, but this was like in our DNA. And then sometime in 2014, it broke. Not, the, not having this innovation proficiency in our DNA, but just our scale changed. We have offices all over the world. Basically, we just start failing. People have no idea how you work on a project, how a new product would get launched. It's just like we just started to crumble in on ourselves. And then, so for example, just to give you a real life org thing that we're installing, it's called Fun Labs, right? And so what does Fun Labs actually do for us is actually trying to move us up on Rita scale. So we're trying to get everything such that it's how we work, not I got dinner, right, with the right people this night, and we started brainstorming around this product, and that's how it got kicked off. That was our early years. Who sent who a text when everyone was in a good mood, and then the product then started, okay? We don't, don't want to be like that. For example, even with our team members, we wanted to have in our org the principle of least astonishment. So you don't have to agree with everything we're gonna do. But lots of people are like, that's just, I have no clue. I don't even know how that decision gets made. So for us, we think about Fun Labs as this new way that we basically solve our innovation problem at scale for the whole company. And so the way we think about it, and this again, this is DNA stuff, is like meaning, money, and morale. We wanna give every, t every talent all three, and this is one way to get there. Um, and then this is, like, this is like our last slide, just like one more dancing. Um, but for us, this is the thing that I found, and I think it's always really hard because 
even kind of Jason mentioned, like, well, I'm, I still get to always be the founder or whatever. This is a part that I find like just really interesting. The best company I've ever been part of is the one where I try to make the least decisions about anything that we're ever doing, right? I'm always like, wow, that's amazing, the stuff that you guys come up with. And I'm just like, yeah, yes, yeah, I'll support you. Let's just put structure around it. So, um, so for me, when I think about um, how you follow the talent, you think about talent architecture, you're watching for these strategic inflection points, you're installing innovations with proficiency, you can actually have a really fun company, I think. And then Reed's gonna do the backpack dance. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> and, and, and then we got yaks. Yeah. Thank you. Tell them about the yaks. That's an example. That's an actual example. Oh, yeah. That, I, I just I, I put in the chicken. I thought chicken was awesome yesterday. But, <laughs> but I just was like, like my team, my team basically took a, like a polish pass on the deck because I'm not an artist. And they're like the, like, the thing that they only cared about was this badge, shave yak, shave money, so funny, Dallas Shave Club. And it's like, oh, that's now my favorite thing in the deck, too. Right? <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. I All think right. that was a Highland cow, not a yak. Pardon? I think it was a Highland cow, not a yak. Oh, okay. Can we just pretend it was a yak? Because it, it, uh, the research is yaks Well, the, the two ball. things I'm good on are <laughs> where London is okay, and, and what Highland cows look like. Right, so okay. That's my contribution. <laughs> so so in, we, have to get, we have to tell Adobe because I typed in yaks. I might be wrong. I usually am. Hi, um, I'm curious about the weather indicators. Uh, so once you get the answers, uh, what do you do? Uh, what kind of action do you take? Once you've detected a possible inflection point? No, sorry, the weather indicators you send. Oh, oh, that's, that's yours. <laughs> well, you, you, so here, 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 here's like the non-answer answer, but Warren Buffett has this beautiful quote, business is always hard because I always have to apply judgment. So. That's the thing when you're actually at the C-level or the founder level, you actually have to help apply judgment, you have to prioritize. So for example, Rita has tools for this, like innovation portfolio, how much money do we have in core, core, in, uh, core investments, how much money do I have for stepping, uh, stepping stone options in the future? So someone has to take a step back and go, well, across all of the stuff that we're investing in, do we right, have the volume knob set up right? And like, there's no guarantee that you do. That's the judgment piece. Right? And that's the part that's always hard, which is why you always want to come back and floss it. Because you're basically always wrong. But you just keep trying to iterate and iterate and iterate. So you're, you're hoping that you're better, better off after. So and I'll chip in on that too. The, the, the particular example that Michael was showing about the culture piece, well, that's an early warning, right? So now what you've got to do is dig in and get to what's the root cause. So are we, is it that people don't understand what we're trying to do? Is it that people are confused? Is it that they're not being well-led? Is it that the local, you know, leaders of the teams uh, haven't been good about doing the things it takes to keep the culture where it is. So, you, you know, you want to get that, that early warning. Now you need to do a diagnosis and find out what's really the, the root cause, and then you can start to take action. But I wouldn't leap directly to action. I'd, I'd give it some thought before saying, why are people signaling this to me? Uh, one of the things we, we look at a lot is a, um, uh, a diagnostic for team effectiveness, which, which I'm happy to share with you guys if you're interested. But from that very simple diagnostic, it's 20 questions, and you can, you can get so zeroed in on what's going on with your teams. You know, is it, is it that I don't believe we have the right people in the right roles? Is that we don't have psychological safety? Is it that I don't know what information people need, right? And so that would be a follow-on to something like this. So once you've got the signal, then you do a deeper dive to figure out what's, uh, what's the cause. Thank you. Brilliant. In the middle up front. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm just curious about uh, the example you gave around autonomous vehicles and the, the timings and things. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you, uh, I suppose, judged the, the timings mm -hmm. of the, the different stages? Sure. Um, yeah. um, so what, what, what we try to do is we start with, okay, let's say we've got something we're worried about two, three years out, right? And now what we want to do is say, well, six months before that could even be possible, what would have to be true? Like, what would have to be in place? And then you kind of work backward. Now, it's not precise, right? I mean, it, you know, the, the guy that died in the Tesla, it was last year or the year before. Um, so, so that might have been, like, even in the past, that's maybe even a lagging indicator. So it's a little bit heuristic. I think the, the principle, though, is we don't want to be leaving it till the six-month mark before we start 
looking at it in terms of our strategic plans. And what, I do this a lot with, with senior teams, and what you'll often hear is, well, um, two years ago, <laughs> this thing happened that we should have been paying attention to, and here we are in trouble now because we didn't. And so it's a little bit heuristic. I think what's the most important thing, and I, I should re reinforce this, is someone in the organization has that critical piece of information, but they're very often not sharing that. And so the data are spread throughout individual minds and, and so forth. The, the evidence is there. So one of the critical pieces of this methodology is make it one person's responsibility to look after that particular scenario. So that if somebody picks up a piece of information at a trade show or a conference or hears something from a customer, that has a place to go, right? Oh, you're, you're looking at the, you're, you're on the autonomous car sort of early warning system, I heard something from a customer this morning that might be interesting. So very simple, like don't make it heavy, big, you know, scenario planning. Uh, but, but those kind of very light touch can really just get you much more aware of, of what's going on out there. Can I just add but, one quick thing? Sure. I thought it was neat yesterday when Mike was talking about FreshBooks, and he's like, basically, I want to give all my competition, I want to basically surprise them at time zero. Right, like if you think about all the work that happened, it was basically saying, yeah. Here you go. Now, now respond. Right? You didn't even know it was us. Right? You needed a lot of setup work to do that. That's it. That's right. That's a good point. Thank you, Keith. Hi, hi, guys. Thanks for a great talk. Um, I'm really interested in the idea you're saying about the, the the middle ground, the ideal optimal time to act on those signals. Um, I was thinking like it's, it's a bit of a, a a problem to the right of that for your large organisations, where your um, advice to them helps drive up that innovation. What about the smaller organizations where the danger signs on the other side, where we are, you were saying about the problem where the infrastructure wouldn't be ready for your ideas yet, and I guess the other main one is you think you've got a signal, but you're just wrong. You've, you've thought of this idea, and it's, it might be right, but you're decades rather than years away, you're going to work on this you know, Ethereum idea or something that just mm -hmm. isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. Have you got advice for that side? For example, on your chart of innovation, uh -huh. would you say, don't go to number eight, go to number six? Possibly, yeah, possibly. Um, and I, and I, I don't want to confuse two things. Um, being very mature in innovation isn't really equivalent to how soon something's ready to be incubated. Um, so for the smaller organizations, I think a couple of principles there is you want to be very conservative with your resources until you have a high level of certainty about what's going to happen. There's a technique that I developed years ago uh, called discovery-driven planning, which basically says what we're going to do is very systematically convert our assumptions to knowledge. And only when we've done a fair amount of that work are we going to allow ourselves to spend real money. So that's the technique I would advise, actually for big firms or small firms, but it's, it's a very useful way of saying, we're not going to spend a lot of resources investing in you know, internet retail in 1995 because it's just not a good experience yet, right? And we've got to make too many assumptions relative to what it would cost us to get into that market. So the, the, the overarching idea is really take it step by step through checkpoints and test your assumptions as you go, keeping your risk and your cost as low as possible. So you've got a very strong signal, right? And, and that's what I would advise. I think a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, and, and I study a lot of failed entrepreneurs, uh, they start off with too much money. You know, they start off with too many resources, too many people, and as I said, you know, the things get big before they get smart. And then, and then you know, when, by the time you finally figure out what you needed to learn, you've spent the money and you've invested in the wrong kind of organization and you find yourself in big trouble. Yes, you say I can keep your hands up or just make, catch my eye if you've got questions so we keep them coming quick. I love the storm warning metaphor, but for a second, I'd like to ask about climate change. Uh -huh. the, about two-thirds of the way through the presentation, you had a chart where you talk about the capacity for human adaptation versus the pace of change mm -hmm. of technology. And this is something I've been thinking about for a while as being a potentially existential threat to those of us who are in the room of yeah. being able to have a business of software because of that pace of change. Is mm -hmm. it just dumb luck that anyone's going to stumble onto anything? Mm -hmm. Um, but you've been thinking a great deal about systemizing that. I was wondering if you'd give some comment to the event zero of what happens when one of the, 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 the tech line gets way too far away from the human line. Um, I'll, I'll offer an opinion. I know you have one of you on it. Um, I, I think what we're, what we're always facing is that our institutions lag our reality, right? So we don't know how to regulate blockchains. 
we don't know how to regulate ICOs. We don't even know how to regulate ordinary banks, right? So there's an institutional set of frameworks that always lag what's, what's actually going on. So I think one of the things that we need to do as leaders in our companies, in our communities, in our societies, is trying to explain to um, the people that have the kind of policy frameworks uh, what what needs to be done to keep us safe? You know, to, what what are the guardrails we need to create? And you know, in a very fractious political environment, that's really hard. It's really hard to build consensus. So I'm worried about it. You know, I think I think it is. If we can't take on some of those big challenges in a in a coordinated way, uh, I think it's very bad news. So, you know, I'm optimistic. I think. What's the old line about, about, well, this is a set about America, but I think it's true about humanity, which is uh, America will always do the right thing after it's exhausted all other options. <laughs> and I think humanity is kind of like that, too. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm an optimist, but, but I think it's, it's a very challenging situation. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. I think that's perfectly well said. Cool. Um, yes, I have a question. So... Uh, what are some examples of organizations that have gotten the early warning signs right and have 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 executed on it right? Like they've detected it and they've they've really like not sort of fallen behind on that curve. Uh, because a lot of this is is hindsight, and in hindsight we can definitely say, yeah, you know, they should have done that or they should have done that. I mean, famously, Palm had a quote-unquote smartphone a decade before the iPhone came out. Obviously, there were a lot of things missing and. Certain technical breakthroughs had to happen, but what are examples of companies that did get the timing and the detection of it right and did something about it? Sure. Um, I mean, in software, uh, an example I think is very interesting is Adobe, um, you know, which went from boxed software, which they charged a certain price for, to you know, software as a service sold over the cloud. You know, they saw that changing infrastructure coming, realized their existing business was getting commoditized, and committed the company to shifting in that way. Now, a couple of things to remark on about the Adobe thing. The first thing was they spent a lot of time at the executive level soul searching, you know, really saying, are, are, are we sure this is the way to go? Because this was not just a technology shift, this was a fundamental business model shift. Having made the decision, they, they were committed to it. So I see a lot of companies that recognize the early warning, but somehow to actually make that commitment and do it, that's hard. People don't want to do it. We were talk, kind of talking yesterday about you know, when it actually comes to putting your product at the bottom of the screen, right? People kind of go, oh, no, we don't want to do that. Um, so, so they see it, but they don't, want, they don't have the will to do anything about it. Now, a couple of things that Adobe did that were really smart that I think is useful for you folks to t bear in mind. They took the time to explain to external constituencies, stock analysts, investors, uh, customers, what metrics they should be evaluated on as their business model changed. They took the time to think that through and explain it to people. Because if you're going to evaluate a software as a service business with the same metrics that you use to evaluate a shrink wrapped box service, you're going to fail. You're not going to understand what they're trying to do, and you're going to make the wrong decision. So Adobe, in fact, went through a period where their revenue went down. They predicted it. They warned people about it. They said, this is going to happen. Uh, their metrics were all messed up for a while. They lost a bunch of customers. They picked up a bunch of customers, but they lost some. And had they not taken the trouble to really explain to people what they were doing, uh, they could have found themselves in very bad shape. So I think that was a very interesting example of a company that said, the cloud is coming, our business model's shifting, the nature of competition's changing, here's something we're going to do to respond to it. And they did it with pretty breathtaking speed. Maybe you have some other examples you want to look at? I just think all these companies that we know and love that keep being around, they keep doing it over and over and over again. They have just <clears> different <throat> patterns. Like in a small company, they have a hackathon as a way to say, oh, I guess we're doing our small experiments today. Right or, or uh, yesterday, Salesforce announced a fifty million dollar fund to invest in AI and ML. So how do they pull that in? How does Salesforce pull that in? Well, that's just one of the tools in the toolbox. Right. So you just see it. You you kind of see it in our business. I actually think we're I think we're really good at catching it. I think where it's harder for us to build the architecture in our companies. When I think about software people, we always we're always catching it. I mean, one of the big issues with big companies, and that isn't most of you, but with big companies, one of the big problems is resources get trapped. And so you know, the, 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 the Division A thinks it has, it's entitled to all the profits that Division A generates. Well, the problem with that is if Division A is going into competitive erosion or something's going to make what they're doing obsolete, um, the resources that could be repurposed to discovering something new are sort of held hostage. 
And that's a big problem large companies wrestle with, which actually for you guys is kind of an opportunity. You know, if you're trying to be disruptive and these guys are lumbering along, unable to sort of move uh, to respond, uh, that's an opportunity. Right, one quick question, because I keep on time on the last day, it's important. Guys, so, um, we mentioned the iPhone as one of the examples that we come back to as an inflection point, and that was something that Apple forced as an inflection point. So how do you divide, position, allocate your resources between creating your own inflection points versus trying to react to outside inflection points. So I think that's a, f a function of your strategy, right? Um, and some companies are determined to be on the cutting edge. They're leaders. They're, that's where they want to do. Corning would be an example. So Corning's big thing is we want to be ahead of our customers. We want to be creating the next generation advanced materials for displays and other stuff. Um, therefore, we're going to be in charge of the inflection points. We're going to have scientific talent. We're going to do our manufacturing very close to headquarters in the US so that we're right on top of technical advances. Uh, so that's a strategy where you're very much around, around creating the next inflection point. Other companies are more reactive. And I'll pick on my friends over at Walmart, right? I mean, if what you're all about is just overwhelming the world with massive amounts of operational excellence and execution, um, that's a different thing. You're going to be probably more reactive um, to, to inflection points, although you could make the argument Walmart in its day created its own inflection point in the retail landscape. Uh, so I think that's really a strategic question. Where do you want to compete and how are you going to win? Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.